Well, it is indeed a great blessing that we have to gather for corporate worship, and I'm grateful you're here today. You know, I I still am amazed. It still amazes me. Almost every Sunday, I am surprised. Our church does not do much by way of entertainment. I mean, there are a lot of churches, maybe most churches, are more entertaining than what we do here, right? I mean, there's not a lot of smoke and lights and lasers and all that stuff, and yet people show up just for some simple worship and the study of, the word, of God's Word. So I'm always a little bit amazed that people show up week after week and study the Word of God together. All right, open your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 9, and today we're going to embark on this little bit of a digression from our study of Matthew. The last... Two-plus years, we have been marching through the book of Matthew, really verse by verse, sometimes phrase by phrase, trying to learn everything that's in that wonderful gospel. And when we arrived at chapter 13, as I mentioned last week, the kingdom parables, I asked the other elders uh, if we might need to pause and digress our study Because I anticipated, as we studied the the chapter there, Jesus brings to our minds a a couple doctrines that are hard for us to to understand and hard for us to swallow. Jesus says, to you it's been given, but to them it's not been given. So what comes to our mind is, wow, God's sovereign in salvation? What does this mean? He gives some people, He doesn't give to other people. It seems like He's sort of picky and choosy. That seems unfair. And then the other thought that comes to our mind is, what about the people of Israel? The kingdom parables, Jesus says, basically, this is a a judgment against Israel. He goes on to his hometown and, and basically tells them, remember those days when God was actually growing his kingdom outside of Israel... This is essentially a a judgment against you, people of Israel. And, of course, they wanted to to kill him for saying something like that. That was very, maybe not too bothersome for us in the 21st century, non-Jews. But for them, it it was a problem. Well, the part of the Bible that deals with those two subjects most thoroughly, the sovereignty of God and salvation, and what about the people of Israel, is Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, chapters 10 and 11 deal more with the people of Israel, which is not as much a struggle for us today, but we do struggle something that I think they struggled less with back then, and that is the sovereignty of God in salvation. How does God save a person? So this chapter, chapter 9, is probably the most thorough section on the sovereignty of God and salvation. We could go to other places, Ephesians 1, 1 Peter. You heard from Ephesians 1 uh, some weeks ago when Pastor Ryan preached about it. First Peter, among other passages, John 6, you could look at different verses that allude to God's sovereignty and salvation, even using those, those words that are, that are in the Bible, but we kind of like to avoid, don't we? I mean, generally, we try to avoid words like election and predestination. We don't really like those words. We kind of steer clear of those things. I remember one time in, uh, in a Sunday school class in my church, uh, they were studying Ephesians, and they read that passage that says you were predestined before the foundation of time. And uh, the, the Sunday school teacher just got to that point where it says that and just skipped that section and started in the verses below it. And one of the persons in the class raised his hand, why did you skip those verses? And the guy looked at him real angry and said, you're not a Calvinist, are you? you know, no, I just want you to read the whole, all the verses there. Well, this brings up a, a thought. Is there a part of the Bible, you heard this in my prayer, 
Is there a part of the Bible that's not worth our study? Years ago, there was a, a denominational leader, actually, who was trying to convince me that there are large sections of the Bible, there are swaths of Scripture that really should not be preached to the church. I mean, you can do it in small Bible studies, and you can do it in, in seminaries and, and people who are a little more academic, but, but not all the Bible should be preached from the pulpit on Sunday morning. Really, you need to keep things light and agreeable on Sunday morning is what he was trying to tell me. I thought of two things. I thought, first of all, this is God's Word. And, and Christians aren't dummies. They don't just need to be given everything on the bottom shelf and they're just treated like they're a bunch of third graders. You guys want to grow. You guys are smart. You, you know how to process things. It's not only seminarians that are smart. You guys are smart. You can understand things. Maybe not uh, in the same way. Maybe not even trained in the same way. But, but you guys are smart. You can understand things. This same fellow tried to convince me that in moving to Hawaii, I should never use the word bread when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Because as you know, people in Hawaii eat rice. You need to say, I am the rice of life. They won't understand bread. I thought, we're not dummies. They know what bread is. <laughs> Sometimes folks do feel that way. And a lot of preachers sadly preach that way. They avoid large sections of scripture. They avoid words in scripture. They avoid doctrines in Scripture because they sort of believe, you know, I don't want to offend people. I just want to keep everything light and agreeable and sort of shallow. So this, that was the first thing that came to mind. This is God's Word. It's given to the churches. The other thing that came to my mind, this, this, these are, in particular Romans, these are letters, big part of the New Testament, letters that are written to churches. And these churches in that first century were full of baby Christians, baby churches, full of baby Christians, and here he is using these big words and big doctrines. Now he's explaining them. It doesn't mean he just uses them and expects them to under, understand everything. He explains them, but uh, this is given to baby Christians and baby churches. So I don't think this expectation we should have in the church that we just sort of keep the cookies on the low shelf, teach at a third grade level. That's what someone told, someone told me one time. Preach like, like you're preaching to a bunch of third graders. And I thought to myself, I'm not preaching to a bunch of third graders. <laughs> I'm preaching to people who are smart, and they want to know, and they have questions, and they, they scratch their head. And just as I predicted, I told the elders this months ago, just as I predicted, if we're going to talk about when Jesus says, to you it's been given, to you it's not, to them it's not been given, that's going to cause people to ask questions. And, and we need to help folks. We need to answer those questions. We don't just need to avoid it and move along. And so, sure enough, uh, there have been some very kind, warm discussion. I've had a couple folks uh, email me or call me and say, now, what about this? And even though I taught on Romans, it's, it's been a long time, many years since I preached uh, on Romans. I think six years since we've been in Romans 9, seven years since we've been in the book of Romans. So I thought, you know, this might be a good time to revisit these themes in Scripture, particularly with Romans 9 in view. Well, what are these ideas? Election... God's calling, salvation, free will, which is a, a phrase that's used often, though you won't find it in the Bible. It's a phrase that a lot of people would say, hey, aren't we supposed to have free will? Isn't that a thing? Aren't we supposed to have that? These questions are addressed in the pages of Scripture, and actually quite frequently and quite thoroughly. And because of that, uh, because of these things, we want to study these things. And 
people like to avoid these things, I think generally because uh, the ideas of God's election before we choose Him, that He chooses us before we choose Him, uh, that He does something in our hearts before we're even able to respond to Him, these ideas sort of hurts our pride. It's something that people generally like to avoid. It hurts our sense of individuality. It's amazing to me when it comes to the doctrine of election, when it comes to the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, what cultures seem to accept it easier, more easily than other cultures. It seems like the American individuality has a certain attitude that makes it hard to accept that God does something before we do something. We feel like it's sort of like a free country, isn't it? I mean, we, we get to have our vote in this before then God sort of responds to that, right? Sort of like the president has a lot of power, but in the end, we have to tell him, right? We have to elect him. We have to give him that kind of power, give him that that sort of uh, uh, decision. Well, like I said, my prediction was that this would sort of stir people up and we needed to gently, carefully go through these things. And uh, like I said, uh, folks were asking me things. I love what R.C. Sproul says about, the te- about when you teach or preach on the doctrine of election. When you start to teach or preach on the doctrine of election, he said, what I want you to do, guys, he's preach- speaking to some pastors, he said, you need to be careful. You need to show grace you need to show kindness. This is a hard subject. This is hard to understand. How, how can the Bible on the one, say, on one hand say, whosoever will may come, but then, then say, it's not by the will of man. How can the Bible say this? How do we justify? It's going to be hard on people. You need to show grace, Dr. Sproul said. You need to show kindness. You need to be calm and, and show, show a patience among your people. And he said, I just want you to know it won't work. People will, will get frustrated about this no matter what. It doesn't matter what you say. And, and let me just say this. None of us this side of heaven will be able to figure this all out, right? None of us can figure None of us can, can mine the, the brain of God and map this all out. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of pe- preachers who saw thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people come to know Christ... Uh, He is known for his soul winning. He is known for the thousands who came to know Christ under his leadership. He said, Calvinism is the gospel. But then he would go on to say, you know, this is something we can't figure out. These ideas of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, they seem like railroad tracks. They're two equal truths that never meet except in the mind of God. Only God can fully understand how this all works. And so there's a level of grace and humility that we need to have when we come to the idea of God's sovereignty. Election, predestination, something that happens outside of us, before us, and what God does uh, in, in inciting us and compelling us to come to him and choosing Christ and repenting and having faith and sharing Christ and praying, all these things that from our perspective uh, we must do and, and want to do. Well, I hope to be gentle and kind. I hope to be, uh, this will be as, uh, uh, as least painful as possible as we go through this. Uh, you know, I, I think for the Apostle Paul, the doctrine of election was both glorious and wonderful, but it was glorious, but it was also painful, I think, for him a little bit, because we see this in the very few, first few verses of Romans chapter 9. It seems like it's coming to him that as the Jews show more and more rejection of God, it's revealing the fact that they are not God's elect, and it, it hurt him. It was hard for him. 
Look what he says. We're not going to dig into verses today, but this will be the passage I'll read for today. Verse 1 and verse 2 of Romans 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What was the Apostle Paul in anguish over? Again, he was in anguish over the fact that it was becoming clear through their rejection of Jesus that most of his countrymen, most of the Jews, were not having faith and repenting, and therefore, clearly, God had not had chosen not to do a work in their heart. And it anguished him so much so he would go on to say, I- I'd be cursed on their behalf. If that could be possible, I would be cursed on their behalf. It hurt him that his countrymen were not repenting and being saved. And this broke Paul, this hurt him. And that just reminds us that truth, though it may be hard to swallow sometimes, hard to accept, in the end, if you submit to this truth, even this truth that's hard to follow, hard to understand, if you submit to it, even if it's painful, you will find a joy that's beyond description. You will find a a peace. You will come here, I'm telling you, you will come here in the middle of a COVID crisis and you will sing louder than you ever have. You will rejoice as you look back at God's grace on your life. If you take out the idea that it all sort of depended on me, if you remove that and see that God actually did a work in your heart first before you were even able to respond to him, once you start to realize that, you start to sing louder, you start to worship God more, you start to see, wow, the grace of God is absolutely incredible. And you'll find great joy, even if this is a truth that's sometimes hard to uh, realize and especially hard to understand. Well, this leads me to part one of this sort of introductory message. This message is an introductory message. I'm not breaking down a passage. I'm not even really giving you an outline, but I I, I kind of decided to to put my sermon in two parts. If this were a two-hour sermon, we would get into those first couple of verses there, Uh, but today we're just going to give you an introduction to... Uh, this chapter and this subject matter as we study it. The, the first thing that I want to establish is this, that, that studying and surrendering to hard biblical truths is always worth it. Studying and surrendering to hard biblical truths is always worth it. may not seem like it at first, There may be a doctrine that sounds foreign to your ears or frustrating to your sensitivities about even family members. It may be hard to hear, but in the end, it's worth it. Some of you, perhaps you remember, it was more than seven years ago, like I said, we launched into a a three-year study of the book of Romans, and I began the series by demonstrating that history tells us that it's worth it to study the book of Romans, even with all of its hard truths and difficult difficult things to understand. It probably is the most theologically deep book in the New Testament. And as I studied for that and as I presented to you some seven years ago, I noted that almost all of my favorite preachers, both living and dead, they almost all present their first couple of sermons of the book of Romans with a reference to a a string of individuals, very life-changing, world-changing individuals who were changed by their study of the book of Romans. 
The first is a young man, a really wild and rebellious young man, a young man by the name of Aurelius Augustus, or Augustine. You may know him as St. Augustine of Hippo. That's in North Africa. He lived there in the 300s. His father was a pagan. His mother was a Christian. Her name was Monica, by the way. That's why the name Monica is popular today, because her name was Monica, and she was a Christian, and she tried to convince young Augustine to to do something, to repent, and and he saw this division in his family, and he didn't follow either one of them. He just sort of did his own thing and became a hedonist. He just followed whatever he wanted to do. Whatever his body wanted, he supplied, and and he lived this very wild, rebellious, lustful life. One day in the garden, he was in the garden of of a friend's house, and while he was in that garden, he was sort of debating in his mind, thinking through all of his sin, and he was just admitting how much he enjoys this stuff. He enjoys the women. He enjoys the, the, the sin that he, that he has, but in the back of his mind, he, he felt guilty about it. Moreover, he kind of had figured out by then, he was a little bit older, he had kind of figured out by then that he was in bondage, that he, he couldn't stop. Every time he tried to stop sinning, he, he, he couldn't. He had tried other things to help him stop it. He tried some, some weird religions, but it didn't quite work out for him. And he, and he realized, on the one hand, he loved his sin, and on the other hand, he was in bondage to this sin. So in, in, in one part of him liked it, and one part of him hated it. And he heard some children who were in the next garden over providentially singing a song that said, Tole lege, which in the Latin means, take and read. And he heard them singing this refrain over and over, tole lege. And he looked down, and there was a Bible opened up to the book of Romans. And again, in God's precious providence, he went over and looked at this and put his finger down and read this phrase, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. Now, you know what happens after that. He began to research this, and he began to do this, and he began to say, Lord, I repent, I have faith, I trust in Christ, I want to believe in Christ, I want to, I want to know Him, and I want to turn away from my sin. And that day the Lord gave to the church perhaps the most foundational theologian outside of the apostles, St. Augustine, still studied today. In fact, I got a phone call from a young man who is doing his Ph.D. on Augustine. He knows that I had some uh, volumes, all of Augustine's works, and he asked if he could borrow them. Still study today far and wide. He gave us volumes of clear explanation of Scripture as it pertains to salvation and many other things. Well, it was Augustine's comments and his theology that a young priest, a monk, some 1,000 years later, picked up in his study to teach some students the book of Romans. He was teaching students at the University of Wittenberg. The year was 1515, and the young man's name was, of course, Martin Luther. As he read Augustine's commentary and reflected on the nature of salvation and what was required in salvation, he began to see the light. The Catholic Church held and still holds that you earn God's grace. They would agree you're saved by grace, but first you have to earn that grace. 
You have to get that grace, and the way you get that grace is by living up to a standard of righteousness, living up to God's standard of righteousness. Once you do that, then God bestows upon you through rituals and sacraments. Once you do that, God bestows on you the grace and faith to be saved. But as Luther studied the book of Romans, as he read Augustine's own testimony, he began to see it was not the righteousness that you had to live up to, but the righteousness that God would apply to you, would cover you with, like a clothing on faith, on not, not living up to a standard, but just by saying, God, I trust in Christ. I have faith in Jesus. Upon that action, God would clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. Here's what Luther said. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth That the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy He justifies us us by faith. Again, in contrast to the Catholic Church, it says you have to earn grace. This is a free gift given to you by faith. Thereupon I felt felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And Whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate trying to live up to a standard, trying to meet the requirements, trying to get enough. It now began to fill me inexpressibly with a sweet love. Thank you, Lord, for the righteousness that you've given me. Well, as you know, Luther's discovery didn't just change his life, it changed history. I believe it was Roland Bainton or somebody like that, maybe it was, I think it was uh, Karl Barth who said Luther was like a a blind monk stumbling up a stairway in the steeple of a church and starting to fall, he reached out to grab something to steady himself and it happened to be the the rope for the bell. And as he yanked on that bell, it rang and the whole country, in fact, the whole continent heard the ringing of that bell. And Luther, just stumbling, trying to find truth, trying to study what was right, opened up the book of Romans, reached out for something he knew and when he finally found it, We know that he was ringing this bell all across Europe in the Protestant Reformation. Tens of thousands, if not millions of people, were saved in the following years. Sometimes we don't really realize this, but that was an awakening. This was not just some sort of intellectual uh, split between two groups inside the Catholic Church. That was an awakening. People were saved. There's these wonderful stories of, of monks and nuns getting saved and then looking for mates because <laughs> they, now they realize the Bible doesn't say we can't get married. And, and Luther became sort of, a, sort of a matchmaker. He'd matched so many people together, he hadn't matched himself, and finally someone pointed out, hey, there's this nun over here, Luke, uh, Martin, that you could, you could, uh, you could marry, and he, he married her, Katie von Bora. Like I said, Luther's discovery... The truths of the book of Romans didn't just change his life, it changed history. He realized God and God alone from start to finish is the author of salvation. Repentance and faith, these are not something you live up to. Repentance and faith are graces that are given to you as a gift, lest any man should boast, right? These are things that God gives to us. This is not God and man working together synergistically. You've heard that word, synergism, people working together that salvation is not a synergistic work, it is a monergistic work. It is God and God alone. And though from my perspective, I choose, I repent, I have faith, Luther discovered this wonderful freeing truth 
that in the end it is God all along doing the work. There are others we can look at history, Whitfield, Wesley, Edwards, Spurgeon, even modern-day preachers like R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, John Piper, Alistair Begg. Read their comments. In fact, if you want a really good study over the next month or so that we're going through this, read their comments. Go and read. All their sermons are available online. Go listen to them. Read them. Read their comments on Romans chapter 9. It's absolutely fantastic. The book of Romans, specifically Romans 9, had this kind of impact on my own life. I was in college studying math. I wanted to be an engineer, a physicist, or something like that. I was good at, at those things in high school, and I just thought, well, that's my calling. And at that point in my life, I had, even though my father, grandfather, great-grandfather were pastors, I just didn't, and I liked the ministry. I didn't have some kind of animosity towards ministry or being pastor's kids. I just, I just didn't think I was gifted in that way. I hated public speaking. It made my knees knock. I didn't like standing up. My palms were sweaty. So I thought, well, I must not be gifted in that, and so I must be, I must be doing, called to do something else. So I assumed I wouldn't be a pastor or anything like that. But in my church, in my small group, we started studying the book of Romans. And within a just, just a few short weeks, I came face-to-face with the reality that my whole understanding of salvation needed to be slapped around. I mean, I'd grown up in church. My dad was a pastor missionary. I'd heard these things over and over again. But my worldview was messed up. My theology needed correction. My assumptions about the nature of man, the nature of God, the purpose of my life, the way God saves people... I realized those things needed to be corrected. I had some basics right. I was a believer. I had the basics of the gospel. You do not have to know or even know the word election or predestination to be saved, right? This, this, is, this is something that Paul wrote Christians, and they studied this. I had the basics right, but I didn't understand really how God saved people. And as I started studying Romans 9, it challenged my interpretation. It challenged what I'd always thought I knew about salvation. So I had a dilemma. I was a little bit stressed out. In fact, I would say that for some time my study of Romans was not so much a study or some sort of intellectual adventure of a dilemma. It was a fight. I lost sleep for weeks studying Romans 9. I'd come to some sort of conclusion, and the very next verse that we study the next week would destroy what I thought I knew was true and make me think something totally different. I came each week. I think my, my Sunday school teacher thought I was an idiot because every, every week I'd come to class with a list of questions. I remember him looking at me saying, you're really bothered by this, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am. My first inclination, I think... A lot of yours might be as well, is to say, well, you know, there's a deeper understanding here. What's said sort of on the surface is, you know, you have to have a Greek degree to really understand. This is nuanced, and it it can't mean what it sounds like it means, because it just sounds offensive and harsh. Surely it doesn't mean what it sounds like. Surely there's some other interpretation that you can come to. But the more I studied the passages, the more I studied the verses, the more I realized that the plain reading of the Scripture is the best reading of Scripture, that these things mean exactly what they say they mean. 
And one night I got on my knees and I just said, Lord, I submit. You are Lord, not me. If the word of God says it, I believe it. And it's not hard, it's not easy for me to swallow this because it goes against every heart assumption I've always had. But if your word says it, I believe it. And I'll tell you, from that moment on, my life has been forever changed. Once I did that, that that put me in a completely different relationship. This was a major step in my sanctification. It put me in a completely different relationship with the Word of God. Not not just this particular doctrine, but just with the Word of God as a whole. Suddenly, I, I, I had a different attitude. And it's not that before I was shaking my fist at the Word of God. It's that it just had to become real to me that I really did submit to God even when it hurt. Even when it didn't make sense to me even when I didn't fully grasp or fully understand. And when I finally did this, this changed my life. As time went on, I began to realize that the Word of God, there was a great depravity of the Word of God among even the people of God. And though there were great people and good church folks and nice pastors and all this in the church across our country, by and large, there was, a, there was actually a, a famine in the land. There were a lot of churches and teachers that were nice people but would purposefully avoid the very thing that would give people the same joy that I had discovered. And so it was through the study of Romans that actually led me some couple years later for me to submit to the call of the ministry and to go into ministry. So I look at Romans, especially Romans chapter 9... I remember coming to that verse, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? They're getting that and realizing, who am I? I'm nothing. I submit to what the Scripture says. What an incredible passion that God birthed in me that day. It exists even today. And I would say next to the moment I was saved, that was the, the second greatest joy in my life. The second greatest joy in my life was, was coming into, into, to terms. Do I really submit to God and His Word. Again, this wasn't just some academic crisis, a crisis of belief, a crisis of life, of worldview. Would I really submit to the Word of God? Now, I tell you all that not, to merely, not merely so you know the effect of Romans on my life and other people's lives. Perhaps you can envision a dramatic change in your own life. That's why I would tell those stories. Maybe for you it's not just to submit to the Word of God in a new way, maybe it's to be saved. Maybe you're not saved. You've never repented. You've never had faith. My point is, ladies and gentlemen, it's worth it. Don't deprive yourself of this joy by not submitting, by gritting your teeth, by digging your heels in, by resisting. Just read the Word of God and believe it. My prayer is for amazing spiritual breakthrough for all of us in the next few weeks as we study this. Well, real briefly, I want to do one other thing before we go to the Lord's table. I want to give you the context of Romans 9. There's a run-up to chapter 9, and I want to just run through that very quickly, very briefly, so that you know what's going on and why Paul would be talking about this right here. Uh, In chapters 1 through 3, essentially, 1 through 3, around verse 20, Paul introduces us to the book. He spends a lot of time convincing us of man's depravity, how sinful man really is. 
Man does not have it within himself to earn salvation. Now, it's kind of easy to see that in the lives and persons that are really deeply involved in sin, right? I mean, people that we would think of are terrible people, Jeffrey Dahmer and Hitler and people like that. And so that's kind of where Paul starts. He, he, he starts with people who are really depraved, who have no notion of obedience to the law of God, people who have given their bodies to sexual corruption, corruption of idolatry, the corruption of greed or whatever. These, Paul says, are reprobate people, and they are subject to the wrath of God. And at this point, I think most people would say, Amen, Paul, I agree with you. I've always held that God has grace and mercy on most people, but there are some really bad people that he'll punish, like Hitler and others. Isn't this the belief held by most religions in the world? I think most people across the world, even if they're not religious, most people sort of believe this. You know, God's going to... Generally, if you're good, if you're sort of broadly, morally good, you'll, you'll make it with God. You don't have to worry about all that stuff. Only the really bad people will be the people who suffer the punishment of God. So in chapter 2, Paul moves from someone really bad, the hedonist, the, the reprobate. He moves from that kind of person to good people. Is the good person, is a good guy, a good neighbor, a good worker, a good husband, is that guy good enough to make it to heaven? Paul says, well, maybe not on the same scale, but this so-called good guy who looks at Hitler and looks at Jeffrey Dahmer and looks at other hedonists and says, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that guy, the truth is that man is sinning in the exact same way. Maybe not to the same scale, but he's sinning in the same way. There may not be physical murder, but there's murderous thoughts. There may not be adultery, but there's adulterous thoughts. There may not be open idolatry, but there's idolatry in his heart. So the sins of this man who's committed, by his sins he is judged. He's guilty of the same things. The, The good guy, not just the hedonist, the good guy is also not off the hook. He's going to be judged by God as well. But what about the Israelites? I mean, these are the people of God. They have the promises of God. They, they have this religion they're involved in, and, and it's from the Bible. And, and, and let's say someone's not just, he's not a hedonist. He's not merely a good guy, but he's a good guy, and he's an Israelite. What about an Israelite? Isn't that guy better off? Paul says, nope, not at all. Even Jewish people are subject to the wrath of God. What about really religious Jewish people? Paul says, not those people either. Are they good enough? No. You get to chapter 3, you're sort of in despair, right? I mean, this is sort of negative. Is anyone good enough then, Paul? Can anyone make it to heaven? Is anyone righteous enough to stand justified or, or righteous before God? Can anyone merit salvation? Surely there are are really good people who are out there and who are really kind, like Mother Teresa, who does all these good things for people their whole lives. Surely there's someone out there who's done good enough enough things to get to heaven and enough of them. Aren't there people like that? What does Paul say? Romans chapter 3, no one is righteous, not even one. No one truly seeks God. No one truly 
loves God. All are void of true goodness. Essentially is what he says, quoting from the book of Psalms. Now, we can produce a level of, of goodness and morality in this earth that people, other people would look on and say, that's good, that's right, that's good. But unless it's motivated by the Holy Spirit, unless it's moved through you by God, it's evil. It may be good on, maybe valuable on earth, but it's like monopoly money in the game of monopoly. Do you remember this? It's like monopoly money. It's worth something in the monopoly game. But you can't try to deposit it at your bank. It's useless. You can't take your human morality and stand before God and say, look what I did. That's like monopoly money. It's worthless before a just and righteous God. No one is good. Not even one. Now, it's important for us to get this study or logic of man, which is called anthropology. We need to get this anthropology in our mind, this view of mankind. There is no, no one righteous, not even one. Your anthropology, by the way, determines, this is what theologians would say, your anthropology determines your soteriology. Soteriology is what you believe about salvation. What you believe about the condition of man is going to determine what you believe about what it takes to get man saved. Do you follow me on this? What you believe about man determines what you believe about what it takes to get man saved. If you truly believe what Paul says here, there is none good, not even one. They're making David. They're making even Jesus when he talked to the rich young ruler. There's none good but God. Your anthropology determines your soteriology. What you believe about man determines what you think it takes to save him. And so Paul spends those three chapters, those first three chapters on this truth, that man is depraved. You think people have a hard time hearing that? You bet we do. That is hard to swallow. To believe that somehow on our own, we're wired to believe this. We're wired to believe that somehow on our own, we can be good enough. Or we have the willpower. Or we have enough desires down deep inside that we don't need regeneration or new birth in order to have those desires. But we have them already, and God would, re would reward us with new birth. We're wired to believe that. We're wired to think that way. Paul says, Meganoita, may it never be, by no means. We're all failures. God's grace to have faith and then repent is granted to us by His grace. We're all failures, and it's hard to accept this, but it will radically, if you accept this, it will radically change your understanding of what it takes to save a soul. If you believe what most Christians, I think, today believe about themselves... If you believe what they believe about salvation, that you can do enough good stuff, that you can go through enough ritual, that you can merit salvation, if you believe that, you're following along the lines of what exactly the Catholic Church taught in the time of Luther. But if you believe what Paul says in the first three chapters, your understanding of salvation is radically different. There's no amount of good deeds or ritual religion that you can go, go through to earn God's favor. So, at the end of chapter 3 through 4, I'm kind of dragging this out. I'm going to move more quickly. Uh, Paul describes biblical salvation. So, what does it take, Paul? <laughs> it sounds hopeless, Paul. This, is, this sounds impossible for someone to get saved. Well, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. 
Salvation must be obtained then by the righteousness, not of an individual, but the righteousness of someone else being applied to that individual. Someone else, if they can't be good enough and stand before God justified, then someone else's goodness, righteousness, must be put on them so that when God looks at them, they don't see that person's earthly righteousness. It's like monopoly money. It's worthless. They look, God looks at that person and sees perfection. Whose righteousness do you think that is? Jesus's, right? Jesus' righteousness. The word is imputation. If you want a theological word to impress people, that righteousness is imputed upon all who believe. You need to be clothed. That's Paul's word, to be clothed in his righteousness, to stand before God justified. This faith, this desire, this repentance has to be granted to you, again, as a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9. All that false goodness along with your sin has to be judged. And so Jesus not only offers his righteousness, he offers his payment for sin for all who would believe. And so Jesus came. He provided a perfect life, perfect human righteousness on this earth. He, he produced that throughout his life, and he offers that to cover us. And he also offers us the penalty payment for our sin. He paid for the sin. And then he offers us the power over sin and death, right? In his resurrection, he demonstrates his power over sin and death. And all of this can be credited to our account. How? By faith. But it's not a faith that says, I'm so good, I have this faith, I'm better than those who don't have faith. It's a faith that says, even humbly, Lord, even this faith you have given me. Even this belief you have given me. It's not because I'm better than anyone. It is a faith that's been granted to me, and I give you all the glory and all the grace. So now, once you're saved, any righteousness that you produce now is not this monopoly money righteousness. It's righteousness that's produced by God's Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus inside of you, desiring to do what's right. He's made you a new person, given you a new nature, and now suddenly your, your morals are not just surface morals, good only here in this earth, in this time. It's true righteousness. It's Christ-likeness. And it's something that in the end we'll be rewarded for. And of course, we take those rewards and we give them eventually to Jesus himself who is king. Paul gets to chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. He shows us all these blessings. Once you have been justified, once you come to that understanding, once you have faith and you're justified, you stand right before God. Once that happens, when you've been justified by faith, not your works, what's good? What's life like now? What are the blessings? In chapters 5 through 8, he talks about the peace, he talks about the joy, he talks about the true character that's bubbling up inside of you, the love, the assurance, the grace. You have this new nature, you identify with no longer with the first Adam, but with the second Adam, with Jesus. You're now unified with him, and you're, you're living this life unified with Jesus Christ. You're identified with him. That's just the blessings in chapter 5, union with Christ. Chapter 6 starts with the same idea. We have to be identified with Jesus. We have to constantly remember this is our new nature. We have that residue of that old man, that desire, the flesh that wants to sin again. 
but we have a new nature that wants to do what's right. And there's a little bit of a struggle. We see that in chapter 7, this struggle between doing what's right and what we don't want, between doing what's right and what we don't want to do. That is sin. And we have this battle because this residue is a strong pull. These temptations are still out there. We're still in these bodies that have not yet been redeemed. But even in this hardship, even in the difficulty of fighting sin, we find great joy in the presence of the Spirit because we know there is no condemnation. Chapter 8 is the work of the Spirit on your behalf through not just the hardship of temptation, chapter 7, but the hardship that this world puts upon you. Things like coronavirus and cancer and things that happen in this world to you that are hard. Because there is now no condemnation, because everything that happens, whether bad or good on our end, ultimately is to God's glory and to our benefit, we realize God is making us more and more and more like Christ, adopted by the Son of love. There is no loss. We can't be lost by evil of this world. We can't be lost by sin. Any evil that God ordains in our lives is there for our sanctification. It's there for our good. So no matter what comes our way, be it man, be it demons, be it persecution, be it distress, poverty, anger, death, nothing can separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. Well, as a wonderful and glorious and blessed and beautiful as all of this is, if you were a first century Jew, you would have loved this, but there would still be a little question mark in your mind, one bothersome idea, and that would be this. How is this fair to the Jews? God made all these promises to the Jewish people, and His Messiah was going to... All this stuff, and it seems like the Jewish people living in rejection are just getting tossed to the side. How is this fair? God made literal promises about actual land, about actually blessings to, to ethnic Jews, and now it seems like He's chosen to do otherwise. It hardly seems fair. This thought, this dilemma would have been huge in that early church. If you remember back in our study of Romans, you remember that there was a little bit of a, 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 a racial problem they had in that church, and that was between Jew and Gentile. The, the Jews had been expelled from Rome. And so you had this early church at Rome. It was Jews and Gentiles, probably initially just Jews, then Jews and Gentiles. And then there, there was this, this uh, Nero blamed a bunch of stuff on, on the Jews, and the Jews were exiled out of Rome, and you had this Christian church with no Jews. And then the Jews came back, and they came back with all their kvetches and oives and accents and habits and mentality. And, and now you're telling us there's... The Jews have been cast aside. Paul, what's going on? You've got all this very, seems like very Gentile religion happening, and we're just sort of a, a side thought, a, a little historical asterisk. What's, what's happening? This would have bothered the Jewish people. So, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul answers that question. In chapter 9, Paul is going to say God chooses whom He chooses. Ultimately, when it comes down to individuals being saved, God chooses vessels for blessing and vessels for destruction. That does not mitigate man's responsibility. We are still responsible to repent, to have faith, to follow Christ. But there's an acceptance that God's free will is bigger than our free will. God does not live subject to man's choices. God has the freedom to do what He wants. Then in 10 and 11... He goes on to explain that uh, as God unfolds 
history, he's still going to save a remnant of Jewish people, and they're going to be grafted just as Gentiles are grafted into that tree of promise. These Jews will be regrafted in the tree of promise, and they will enjoy the blessings that God promised uh, back in the ancient days. All right, we're finished. I know that's a lot to swallow. You feel like you've gone to seminary. But we needed to cover all this before we jumped in uh, just sort of haphazardly into this study of this chapter. So I felt like we needed to do it. The bottom line is we want a God who is sovereign. We want to serve a God who's in control of everything. We don't want a God who makes his decisions based on what humans do. We want a God who makes decisions completely independently. And though we would completely affirm that we are responsible, and it's hard to map out this in our minds, I understand that, I get that. It's hard to understand that we are still responsible and we must still have faith and then repent and follow Christ. We must still pray, we must still evangelize, we must do all of these things. It's hard for us to map that out in our minds. In spite of that, we must submit to this truth and we'll find great joy when we do this. In salvation, we want God's grace to come and transform us, We want it to regenerate us, change us, so that we can have that ability to have faith, to repent, and not just to do it that one moment, but to continue in our faith and repentance. And that's what we pray for every Sunday, that the Spirit would compel us toward that faith and repentance, that the Spirit would compel those who are not saved to have faith, to repent, turn to Christ. So let's pray God would help us in that even today. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your truth. Bless us now as we take the Lord's table and remind ourselves uh, about you and what you did to establish our salvation. So this is a great salvation. It's mighty and wonderful. Bless us as we do this. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.